Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have our next segment in our Life of Jacob series with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, he's going to be dealing with the major transition point that's happening in the life of Jacob. Jacob here is becoming a new kind of person after the blessing has been given to him. And here, Jordan's going to be talking about what that means. He's going to be talking about the call of Israel to be a suffering servant for the nations. He's also going to use this time of transition to discuss things like circumcision and baptism. And he even finds a way to give a little overview of the book of Leviticus along the way, which is really helpful. We really hope that you enjoy and that you're sharpened by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Well, what I want to talk about today is that at this point in the history of the world, Jacob becomes a new kind of person because the inheritance of the forefathers is put upon him with the blessing of Isaac. And that's a mixed blessing. What he receives at that point is something that's going to be good for him and it's also going to cause him a lot of pain and trouble. There are two reasons for that. One is that the whole calling of Israel was to be a suffering servant, to die for the other nations. Ultimately, they didn't do it and they weren't really supposed to. They were just supposed to show what that meant and Jesus came to die for everybody. But the whole purpose of Israel as a nation was to live in this fear of death so that others might live and to show what that means. And it has something to do with us because in Christ we're called to esteem others better than ourselves and to die that others might live. And we saw in the book of Revelation that martyrdom and suffering are important ways in which we overcome evil. That's one part of what begins to happen to Jacob now. I mean, he was circumcised as a child, but by receiving the inheritance of the kingdom, he has to take up this calling in a new and more significant way. And then a second aspect of trouble that comes upon him is that in receiving the blessing of Isaac, he receives Isaac's sins. And he has to carry Isaac's sins and deal with them. And ultimately, that's what Jesus does again. He takes our sins and deals with them. So Jesus takes upon himself the calling to suffer and die, and Jesus takes upon himself our sins to deal with them. And those things happen to Jacob. Now, there's a good side too, and that is that there's a promise of blessing, and long term, that is what comes as well. But short term, there's difficulties and problems that come. And Jacob, for 77 years, has lived in this family, and he's had, you know, these normal kinds of problems that people have, in addition to the fact that his father has been against him and his brother has been against him, and he's had those kinds of difficulties and problems. But now he becomes sort of the official covenant line barrier. So he takes on messianic role. Compare it to Jesus' baptism. I mean, Jesus was the Son of God incarnate for 30 years, but then he's baptized, and he takes on at that point certain duties and responsibilities and begins his ministry. Well, Jacob is at that point in his life now. Now Jacob has to take things on. And I want to talk about this under three heads, well, four heads, which I'm going to call circumcision as a sign of substitutionary death, second, blessing and baptism and the relationship between the two, third, the death of the Abrahamic covenant, and the fourth, the cross that Jacob has to carry. And we'll see how far we get with that today, but this is 
basically the lesson I wanted to talk about because I think this starts to shed light on the things that happen next in the Jacob story and we're at that transition point now. So first of all, what is circumcision? Well, circumcision is a form of death. It kills you. And it represents killing you in a significant way. What circumcision means for Israel is that as a priestly nation, they have to bear the sins of others and die for them that they might live. Out of all the nations of the world, God sets one apart to live in this sphere of death that others might live, and the sign of that is circumcision. Circumcision is not first and foremost a sign that you're going to get to run the world and be in charge of everybody else, and everybody else is going to have to bow down to you, and you're the supreme one. That's pretty much the way the Jews had come to think about it in Jesus' day. Instead of thinking of themselves as servants who would lay down their lives for others, the Pharisees had come to think of themselves as superior. The election meant that they were superior to everybody else and that they were really supposed to be in charge, and someday they would have an empire like the Romans had, and that's why Jesus said they worship Caesar. They want to be like Caesar. They don't want to be like Jesus said. He says, those who would be great among you must be humble and take up crosses and be willing to forego glory so that others might live. There is a promise at the far end of that that if you do that, God will return glory to you. But in the short term, it means you have to give it up. And that's what each one of these patriarchs has to do. They have to give something up, something significant, give it up, confident that God will restore something better over the long haul. Now, that's not something you learn in the womb. <laughs> you learn that over a period of time. Uh, you learn the ability to give up all the things that you wanted and hoped for with some at least shred of hope <laughs> that somewhere down the line there's something better. That's not natural to do. That's what God calls Israel to do. And so the history of Israel is a type or a sign of what that means. And you can see this in the later history, and one of the most dramatic ways of it is this whole business of uncleanness, because unclean means death. It means symbolic death. All the forms of uncleanness are forms of death. The preeminent one is if you're in contact with the dead corpse of the human being, even if you come into the same room. A room has boundaries on it, whether it's curtains hanging in a tent or walls. There is a space in here and a ceiling. And if there's a dead body in here and you came into this room, you'd be unclean for a week. You'd be dead for a week. And you'd have to be brought to life again by water baptism. You'd be baptized on the third and on the seventh day, Numbers 19. But all the other forms of uncleanness had to do with the same thing. If you touched the carcass of an animal... Have to be precise here with English teachers in the room. Human beings don't have carcasses and dogs don't have corpses. You touch the carcass of an animal that's died by itself that you didn't kill, you're unclean until the sun goes down. Probably meaning until the evening sacrifice takes that away. Then you have to wash yourself or wash yourself in your garments. Even if it's one of the clean animals, if it died by itself, in other words, you didn't kill it with a knife, it wasn't sacrificed, or slaughtered in a proper way, then touching it makes you symbolically dead. And all the other forms of uncleanness had to do with symbolic death. Paul in Romans 3 describes a human being as having a corpse down inside of himself. How does he write that? It's just a bunch of language piled up from other places, but basically it's saying that at 
the heart of the human life is a corpse. Their throat is an open grave. Okay, if your throat's an open grave, then what's down inside is a dead body. So what do you find in the law? Any of the issues that come from the inner part of a human body cause you to become unclean because they're dead, whether it's seed or blood coming from the inside of the body. Now, not a cut in your hand, but it has to be from your privates. But that's the doorway to your innermost part, because that's where children are conceived. So, anything that comes out of there, whether it's blood or seed or children, comes out dead. Out of your innermost part comes nothing but death. Till the Spirit comes and reverses that. Jesus says, out of our innermost parts comes living water, the kind that baptizes and cleanses things. Similarly, if you have a white spot on your skin, that's fine, but if you can see the flesh underneath it so that your skin has become transparent or opens up like in ringworm. I had ringworm as a child. People used to get it. Now they've got cures for it. But we had it for about a year. And if you had ringworm, maybe some of you that are older remember this, you'd have a circle on your skin and it would kind of open up there. And if that kind of thing, that or something like it happened to you, you had leprosy. Well, it's not really leprosy, but you're dead because the innermost parts that were dead are showing up. Well, all of these symbolic forms of death that reminded the Israelites that they were kind of living in the sphere of death, none of that applies to the Gentiles. Even Gentile God-fearers. If the Gentile was a worshiper and worshipped Yahweh, but he wasn't circumcised, then he couldn't become unclean. When he had a baby, it didn't matter. When she had a baby, it didn't matter. All these rules that are in Leviticus 11 and 15 didn't apply to him. Dead body didn't apply to him. Now, it didn't apply to Israel either until the tabernacle was set up. So this is kind of a two-pronged thing. You have circumcision with Abraham, and then you come down, and when the tabernacle is set up in the midst of Israel, at that point, they start being struck with uncleanness. Abraham never became unclean. Isaac never became unclean. Moses was never unclean for the first 80 years of his life. Nobody was unclean at Mount Sinai, but on January the 1st, or actually April 15th, or whenever it was, the first day of the new year, the second year after they came out of Egypt, when the tabernacle was set up and God moved into it at the end of Exodus, the next thing you find, he tells them how to do the sacrifices, and all of that kind of drops back a little bit in Leviticus and then leads us up again to Leviticus chapter 10 where God comes into the tabernacle, same place as Exodus 40. And the next thing we read are the laws of uncleanness. This is when God draws near, death starts to show up. And God is far away, it's not immediately apparent that we're dead. When God draws near, it's apparent. It starts to show up. All of these various forms of uncleanness begin to be manifest. In other words, circumcision comes to life and starts to show up when the tabernacle comes. Now compare this to the life of Jesus. Comparisons help. Jesus is baptized and starts to carry our sins and our death for himself. But it's not until he draws near to God and God draws near to him on the cross that he actually dies, that it becomes manifest. So there's a time when we're carrying death, we're being a suffering servant, but it hasn't become manifest, and now death becomes manifest. And if you look at the law, 
death is at the center of the law. You may remember that in the social law in Exodus 21 to 23, is arranged chiastically, and the center of that literary structure are three death penalties. Pretty significant ones. You will not allow a sorceress to live. Anybody who lies with an animal being put to death will be put to death. Anyone who sacrifices to the gods other than to Yahweh shall be put under the ban. Would these social laws... I think they would because they're political laws to anybody inside the land. But the religious laws... Certain of the religious laws only apply to Israelites. But the social aspects of the law would apply to anybody who decides to live within the boundaries of Israel. And you can prove that from Deuteronomy and other places. If somebody, one of the strangers in your midst, comes and says, let's worship other gods, then you put them to death. So that does apply to the stranger. Similarly, in terms of the death penalty, in terms of death, what do you have in Leviticus? Well, it starts off with all these rules about killing animals. You deserve to die, so the animal has to die in your stead. As we'll see in a minute, it's one of your sons that has to die in your stead. Then there's all this symbolic death that comes out. There are a whole bunch of laws after these uncleanness of the flesh laws. You know the outline of Leviticus. Can we do this real quick? Quick thumbnail sketch of Leviticus. You can always give this to the kids. Leviticus is sacrifices. Uncleanness of flesh. Bombs. Abominations of blood, times, and persons. That's Leviticus. Sacrifices, 1 to 7, priests, 8 to 10, uncleanness, 11 to 16, abomination, 17 to 22, times, 23 to 26, and persons, 27. Easy to remember. Worship God only, first commandment. Worship God only through the way he says. Second commandment, do not carry his name in an empty way. Third commandment, worship on the Sabbath day. Fourth commandment, honor the particular persons. Fifth commandment, that's Leviticus. Flesh and blood, bread and wine. That gives you a handle on the book if you have forgotten it. Well, this is all death stuff here. Blood is death. And... Spilling out the blood has to do with death. And all of these uncleannesses have to do with death. This is all central. And all of this death starts to show up when the law comes, when God draws near, puts the tabernacle in place and says, you have to die so you can be made alive again. And actually, Israel, Israel has to die for everybody else. That's the trick. Not just you die, but you die for everybody else. And it's actually not just Israel that dies, it's someone else. But... Before we get to that, we have to see that Israel has to die. Now, what happens in the law, to remind you, is during the year, you've got all these sins and uncleannesses that are being done. You've got uncleannesses, which is death, and they're being taken off when people wash, and they're also sins which have to do with blood. Sins are social. You read the second part of Leviticus there, chapters 18 to 22. In the middle of that is chapter 19, which is 70 social sins. Shed blood, blood has to be shed. So uncleanness of flesh, abominations of blood, religious things, social things. All during the year, some crimes are being committed that aren't being found. 
And even when they are dealt with, they're dealt with sometimes in very temporary kinds of ways. All the uncleannesses, you wash people off and they go, or they bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle. What's actually happening according to Leviticus 16 is, all of this stuff is being rolled up during the year until finally it's put on the high priest. The high priest takes off his glorious garments, puts on white garments, and what Leviticus 16 means is, if you read it carefully, all those sins... Not the sins as sins, but the death and punishment for all those sins. The punishment for all those sins, which is death, is all put on this high priest, and now he has to carry it. But he can't carry it. He's not good enough. So what does he do with it? He puts it on these two goats. And one goat is killed and sent up to God, and the other goat is sent out. So now the goats carry it off. Well, that's just for a year. Then it starts up again. People start becoming unclean again. And all this stuff starts to accumulate again. It goes on the high priest. And on the day of covering, it's dumped on the goats and carried off. And then it starts again. Year after year. The book of Hebrews says year after year, these things could never take away. It just represented that someday they would be taken away. Now, uncleanness is coming on Israel from the nation. In a sense, it's the nations who are dead. They're not living near to the Lord. But Israel is carrying their uncleanness. So, behind the symbolic death that's on Israel is the 70 nations. You've got a whole series of transfers here. The sins of the nations are put on Israel. Or the death. The death of the nation. So that the nations might live Israel experiences death. So that Israel might live, the high priest will experience death. And so that the high priest might live, these two goats experience death. That's the sequence of transfers, which pushes us down, you see, to Jesus. But it means along the way, Israel is a nation living in death for the sake of these nations. That's the meaning of it. That's why the nations come into view at the Feast of the Tabernacles, because after the Day of Atonement, all the death is taken away, who benefits from it? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles, Israel and the nations benefit from it. That's why you have 70 bulls at the Feast of Tabernacles. Once the sins are taken away, everybody benefits. It's not just the sins of Israel. It's not just the deaths of Israel that's put on the high priest and put on the goats. It's the whole world. But during the year, Israel is experiencing all these different kinds of deaths so that the nations might live. Now, all this relevant to Jacob because that's what circumcision points to. You become the suffering servant. You read in Isaiah and you have the songs about the suffering servant. Well, who's being talked about there? Well, it draws back from the fact that Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac did suffer, and Jacob really suffers. At the end of his life, Jacob is going to say to Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of my life. I've suffered my whole life. Why? So that Egypt can live. That's why. He suffers his whole life so that Joseph can be produced, and Joseph suffers so Egypt can live. So this is the calling that circumcision implies. 
And Jacob receives this calling when he receives the blessing from Isaac. Potentially there when he circumcises a baby. When Isaac puts his hands on him, then he becomes the official guy who is going to suffer in some ways for the life of the world. And that's a change in Jacob's life. It's kind of like, Jacob, you thought you suffered up till now. You ain't seen nothing yet. But on the other hand, there's much greater rewards on the other end of this too. Now, there's one other aspect of this. We talk about circumcision. Of course, we don't like to talk about circumcision because what it actually is. But circumcision is an operation that cuts the foreskin off the man's penis. And that has to do with childbirth. Cutting off the foreskin means offering your son, offering the future. So there's a direct link between Abraham being circumcised, not having a finger cut off now, but circumcised, and Abraham offering up Isaac, who is his son. Now that adds another feature to this that we haven't talked about. Up till now, it's we carry the death for the world. The world lives. We will experience some various forms of death. Uncleanness, the inconvenience that uncleanness brings. Oh no, I'm unclean. You know, I'm going to have to avoid people for a few days. Uncleanness is little more than an inconvenience. There are other things that are more serious. We carry all of these different kinds of tribulation as the people of God, as Israel, so that others can live. But now, it gets trickier because it's not actually I who carry it, it's my sons who carry it. My son has to replace me. My son has to experience death for me. Now it goes back to Genesis 3. The seed of the woman, the son of Adam, is going to have to experience death for Adam's sins. Now that's very hard to think about and deal with, but it's exactly what Abraham had to understand. Abraham didn't get to die. He had to kill Isaac. You know, if I sin, then I want to be the one to pay the penalty. Well, maybe I don't want to pay it at all, but if I decide I want to get right, then my pride says, I will pay the penalty for my sin. What destroys my pride is God says, you can't pay the penalty for your sin. Somebody else will have to pay the penalty for your sin. Well, there's no pride in that, but at least it doesn't hurt a whole lot. Some guy I've never met pays the penalty for my sin. But what if God says, I want you to take your little boy and kill him and let him pay the penalty for your sin? Woohoo! That's a lot harder. Now that's what's involved in all of this. That's what circumcision means. Circumcision means you have to kill your little boy and let him pay the penalty for your sin. Now, as a matter of fact, paganism is full of that. As Rich was saying here, that in India, people always had two children so they could take one and drop it in the Ganges and offer it to the gods. So, killing your child is very common, and yet God says you can't actually do it. And the reason is your children are not good enough to die for your sins. There's only one child who will ever be born who's good enough to die for your sins. But first of all, you have to think about the fact that not only I'm not allowed to die for my sins, I'm not allowed to be punished for my sins, and it's not just some guy out there who's going to be punished for my sins, it's my own little boy that's going to be punished for my sins. And it's not a little baby either. It's somebody that I've grown to know and love and care about for 20 years, and now that he's about 20 years, you take him up on the mountain and plunge a knife into him. It's somebody that you care about. That's the son who has to die. 
That's what circumcision means. It's why it's done on the foreskin and not on the little finger. It's your future, it's your son that has to die. Now, how does that work? Well, I mean, I've already alluded to Abraham. But remember, and I know I pointed this out before, but it never hurts to point it out again. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 5, talking about the ascension offering, the very first sacrifice, the rule for all the rest. He shall slay the young bull before Yahweh. No, it doesn't say that. In the margin it says, he shall slay one of the herd. Then it says literally, a son of the herd. See, every sacrifice, every animal sacrifice is a son. And every son, animal son, is a substitute for a human son. In fact, you've got in the law the firstborn son. In fact, every human son has to be substituted with an animal, especially the firstborn son. You have to bring sacrifices when children are born as substitutes for them. But these are all sons. And every time you kill an animal as sacrifice, you're killing your son. Now the priests are sacrifices. Let's draw this back again. The goats are sons. We're killing these goats. Well, is the priest a son? If it's the son who has to die, how about the priest? Is the priest a son? Yes? How do you know? What? Because he's not a daughter. Yeah, but I mean, we got to have a little bit more than that. It tells who the father is. But how did these guys become priests? They substituted for the firstborn children of Israel who were saved at Passover. Well, Passover, we have an animal son. Have to just keep thinking transference here. The Passover. Let's see, we start with Isaac. Isaac is the son. He's replaced by the ram. Passover is the ram. Two, four, by the Levites, who include the priests, because the priests are all Levites. So the Levites are the sons of Israel as a community. And since they're sons, they are as a group sacrifices. To be a priest in this system implies that you experience a certain amount of deprivation or suffering so that others might live. Now you start looking at the rules for priests and Levites, you see some of that. There are only certain places they could live. They can't own land. They don't have their own garden. Levites don't. Every Israelite has his field and his vineyard and his olive yard and the property that God gives him. It goes back to God in a jubilee year and then God gives it to him again. Levites don't get to have any of that. Their inheritance is Yahweh, but they give up. They die to certain kinds of things so that Israel might live. The climax of that, of course, is when the high priest actually physically dies. People who are locked up in the city of refuge get to go home. So he dies to take away their exile. When people are exiled, the priest dies. People get to come back from exile. So priests are sons. So priests are in some ways going to experience death for others. But if priests are sons and Israel is a nation of priests, then Israel is a nation of sacrifices that has to die for others. What did God say to Pharaoh? Israel is my son, my firstborn, let my son go. So Israel is a nation of people who by circumcision have taken on this role of sacrifices. They're all sons, but in particular, their sons have to die the animal substitute for their son. This goes on generation after generation until we come to Jesus and God gives up his son 
for us that we might live. But before we get there, see, we're with Jacob. We haven't even come to this whole Levitical system here, but the Levitical system helps us to understand what's happening with Jacob. Jacob now moves into this sphere of things. He will have to experience tribulation for others in a way that he didn't before. Before, it was just kind of tribulation to teach him a few things, so he learned some stuff. You know, we learn by going through tribulation. Now there's something more goes through tribulation for other people to bear their burdens. Jacob has to leave so Esau can stay. Esau should be the one leaving. But there's a sense in which Jacob has to leave so Esau can stay. And that's part of what he does, this substitution. So Israel, the word priest means servant, royal servant. The whole nation is a nation of suffering servants. That rolls together into the remnant in the days of Isaiah. Isaiah describes the suffering servant. And in part he's talking about the community of the remnant that's about to be formed. They're going to suffer because of the sins of Israel. And all of that flows together into Jesus, who is the ultimate suffering servant, who is the priest and the son. Now, the point of going through all that is, at this particular point in Jacob's life, he takes up this calling. And there are some things that are going to happen to Jacob that we'll watch as we go along that have to do with that. And it's important to understand, Jacob becomes very much a type of Christ. And he has to bear Isaac's sins as Isaac's replacement, and he has to deal with them. He has to suffer for them. He has to work them out so that his sons receive something better. Now, let me talk about baptism here. Because what happens with this blessing of Isaac is similar to what happens in baptism and has largely the same meaning. What happens to us when we're baptized? Baptism conveys God's blessing on us as sons. Just as Isaac gave his blessing to Jacob as his son, baptism is God's blessing on us as sons. And we see that at Jesus' baptism, because when Jesus was baptized, what did God say? You're my beloved son. Mark 1, 9-11. He was baptized, the Spirit came upon him, a voice came out and said, You are my beloved son. So these situations in the Old Testament, and particularly the one we've just studied, where a father blesses his son, is what baptism is. But when you're baptized, whether you're a girl or a boy, God's blessing you as a son. And in baptism, we receive all that Jesus is. That's the inheritance. And our inheritance is Jesus and his whole life, and all that he is, and he's perfect. That's what we get. And when we're baptized, everything that Jesus is is given to us. His ability to suffer for others, his rule over the world, his future glory, all those things, we receive it. And he's perfect. So we don't receive anything bad from Jesus. If it looks bad, it's just that our perception is incomplete. We need to broaden our horizon. But when Jesus is baptized, he was receiving all of our stuff, which wasn't very good. Jesus' baptism involved two things. He received blessing from the Father, and he also received from us. 
He became the new Adam, the one who has to stand in our stead and do what we didn't do. When Jesus was baptized, he received from the Father and also the inheritance of the whole human race. Now compare that to Jacob receiving Isaac's blessing. When Jacob received Isaac's blessing and Isaac baptized him, so to speak, he received the Abrahamic covenant and all the good things that that involved. He also received the perversion of the Abrahamic covenant that Isaac had brought about. He receives both of those things. Just as Jesus receives to be a new Adam, all the gifts that Adam was given in the beginning, but he also receives all the perversions of that that we have brought about. Then he has to die for those perversions. Jacob receives the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant and also the perversion of the Abrahamic covenant that Isaac has brought about. Because it doesn't come to him in its original form. It comes in a distorted, perverted form. Because Isaac has been like Adam, he's committed another fall, and now it's a fallen covenant that Jacob received. That's why there's an ambiguity in the text between the blessing of Yahweh and Isaac's own blessing. Remember, we looked at that. We noticed it as we went by several times. Whose blessing is this? You know, I will give you my own blessing. Was it Yahweh's blessing or Isaac's blessing? Well, it's both. It's the original inheritance of the Abrahamic covenant, but it's also that inheritance as it has been messed up by Isaac. Now, Jacob gets it in that messed up form. Just as Jesus at his baptism becomes the new Adam, but in the messed up form that we've made it. So he has to work it through. Now we can say there's something similar to our baptism. Our baptism plugs us into Jesus and his perfection. I said that. We get Jesus. But another thing that happens in our baptism, there's also the church out here. And when we're baptized, we're plugged into the church. Now being plugged into Jesus is great. Being plugged into the church is horrible. But the church is a mess. When you're baptized, you inherit everything that Jesus is, but you also inherit all the messes that the church has done in history. And that's where you start. That's why every generation of human beings starts at a particular place. We don't start from scratch. I mean, this is just common sense, isn't it? You grow up speaking English. You grow up in American society. You grow up with certain wrong ideas. You grow up with certain wrong traditions and certain right traditions, certain wrong viewpoints, certain right viewpoints wrong habits and right habits, all of that you inherit as an American. And then if you grow up as a Christian, you may have to work through some of that and try to get it out so that your children can grow up better, with better habits and better traditions. Or you can make things worse. But all of us come into history at a certain point and inherit all the stuff that's there and then have to work in terms of that. Well, baptism means the same thing. It's a new birth into a new community. When you're baptized into the church, on the one hand, you get all the benefits of Jesus, and on the other hand, you get all the benefits and problems of the church as she exists right now. So if you become a Presbyterian, you get all the problems of being a Presbyterian. And you have to kind of live in terms of that and work it out. That's what the Lord's Supper does. If this bread here was only Jesus, wouldn't that be great? But what does it say in Corinthians? That it's also the body of the church. That we are sharing in one another. Well, I'm not sure I want to share in you all your crummy sins. i got enough of my own. But when we eat this bread, we not only get Jesus in ourselves, we get all the church in ourselves and all the problems of the church in ourselves. Because God wants all this to be worked out over a course of time. 
Jacob gets all these problems and Jacob has to start working them out. Now, that's just reality. I mean, the reality is all of us get a bunch of stuff from the past and we have to work it out. The benefit of being in the church is you have the Holy Spirit, you have the perfect life of Jesus Christ added into that, which enables you to start working it out. But it means that God works things out over the course of generations. And I think that sometimes pastoral counseling needs to take into account where people come from. Because people do inherit from their parents the way their parents live, the patterns in their lives, certain tendencies that may be good tendencies or bad ones. But then your challenge is to work them out and to try to improve on them. Jacob is going to inherit a bunch of stuff from Isaac. This is the common sense level. Jacob has grown up his whole life in a family where the father prefers one child over the other. Now, he's going to inherit that way of thinking. And because he inherits that way of thinking, Jacob is naturally going to prefer some of his sons over others. Well, that's the way he's always been led to think. Now, I never thought that way. Because my parents were very careful to treat us equally. It would never occur to me. I'm horrified at the thought of parents preferring one child over the other. And I think most of us are. But that's not the way it is in many cultures of the world. In fact, apart from the gospel, I'd say that's probably not the way it is anywhere. People naturally gravitate toward a child that is more like them. And they don't restrain themselves subconsciously or consciously. They naturally prefer this child. And disdain the others to a certain extent. And then that creates rivalry and feuding and conflict that spreads down into the next generation and the next one and the next one. At some point it has to be worked out. Yeah, sometimes it's preferring a daughter or a son. I mean, you can psychologize the Jacob-Esau thing with Rebecca and Isaac, and I think you can go too far with it, and I don't want to do that, but there's something there. And although Jacob is very careful with his sons to distribute the blessings evenly at the end, the fact is you've still got that tendency in history so that over the course of time Ephraim and Judah wind up at odds with each other. The kingdom splits. Through the book of Judges, that conflict between Ephraim and Judah is building. It's pulled together in David for a while, then it splits again. And in Zechariah, Zechariah makes this great promise that the two staffs will be pulled together, united Ephraim and Judah, northern and southern Israel. But all of this has something to do with the way you grow up and then happen to work it through. Well, baptism gives you the power to work these things through in significant ways. We have the privilege of working through those imperfections generation by generation, gradually making manifest Jesus' perfection in the course of human history. See, Jesus is perfect. But the way that comes to expression works its way out over time. And I think it can cause you to relax a little bit if your life isn't absolutely perfect. Well, there's going to be other generations that have a chance to work it out. Our lives are imperfect in a lot of ways that we don't even see. And it's only going to be when we get certain problems worked out that our children can start to see, oh, you know, there's these other problems too, and work them out. And their children will say, oh, there are these other problems too, and work them out. So that the perfection of Jesus is gradually applied in history over generations. But I do think that sometimes it's important to understand that, especially as Reformed people, we believe God works through generations. And we see in the Bible that there are judgments that go down to the third and fourth generation. There are blessings that go down for thousands of generations. We ought to expect in dealing with people and looking in our own lives that some of the problems that we have 
probably come up out of our family line. It has nothing to do with genetics. It has to do with spirit. And it can be worked through. But it's something that gradually happens. Well, in a powerful kind of a way, this comes on Jacob at this point. Jacob now inherits all of Isaac's problems. And it's a significant problem because Isaac has killed the Abrahamic covenant. And we'll come to that next week. Abraham became the kind of man who was willing to offer up his son. When Isaac gets to the exact same point in his history, he refuses to do it. That becomes the issue. What does circumcision mean? Circumcision means you offer up your son. Positively, it means you give him to God. You say, I'm not good enough to be a father to this child anymore. God will have to be his father. Only God is big enough to be a father to a human being. So at some point, the earthly father has to step aside and let God be the father. And Abraham sees that. And that's part of what happens there. And he says, I'll give my son up. I'll even kill him if that means the salvation of the world because I know he'll come back to life again. And he gets to the point where he's willing to do that. And Isaac inherits that. So it should be easier for Isaac to do that because Abraham did it. It's easier to do something a second time. But Isaac says, I won't do it. Here's Esau. He's the one I love. I won't do it. So Isaac kills the Abrahamic covenant. Jacob has to undo it. When does Jacob undo it? When does Jacob reaccomplish what Abraham accomplished? No, not when he blesses his sons. This is something that happened before that. It has to do with offering up your son. When did Jacob offer up his son? Not to Joseph. He didn't send Joseph. Well, he sent Joseph to find his brothers, but that wasn't a risk. When he sent Benjamin down to Egypt. Almost certain that he would die. I think that's where this whole story winds up going as far as Jacob is concerned. Jacob says, no, I've already lost one son. I'm not going to send Benjamin. I'm not going to do it. And then finally he does it. And then we're sort of back to where Abraham was. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.